Hello everybody, how's it going? Welcome back, welcome into another episode of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. I, of course, am Andrew for America. Thanks for listening. Uh, today, I want to start the episode with this cool story about Mike Rowe. If you guys know who Mike Rowe is, he is uh, he was the host of Dirty Jobs. Uh, he's a big proponent of uh, the trades and uh, getting kids uh, interested in trade jobs again and getting shop class back in high schools. Um, important stuff. And uh, I really like his perspective and his attitude. A lot of people want him to run for office. Um, but this story that he tells about this doctor who um, is a fan of his, apparently, I thought was uh, kind of heartwarming, kind of touching. And, you know, I've been kind of doom and gloom about hard truth on this show uh, lately. Crazy times we're living in. And uh, I wanted to kind of turn up the optimism and the fun a little bit in this episode. So... Uh, here we go. This is a cool story. Mike Rowe is telling you about something he uh, experienced in his life, and I uh, wanted to share it. Here we go. So I'd like you to take a second, if you can spare a second, and put yourself in my place just for a minute. You're sitting home, taking it easy, wondering if your nose is ever going to return to its normal size, when you walk up to the mailbox and discover a package. And the package is a book. It's called The Nation We Knew, and it's written by a doctor named Stephen Shepard, who includes with the book a note saying he's a big fan of your foundation and he thinks you might enjoy the manuscript with his compliments. Now, people send you books in the mail all the time, and typically you don't read them. You can't. You're terribly busy. You don't have the time. But on this particular day, you have the time, so you sit down and you start reading. And it's a kick. It's kind of a fantasy. This book, The Nation We Knew, really takes place in the future when a reporter for the New York Times in 2037 named Meadows is given the task by his editor to write the definitive retrospective on the administration that had the most impact on the country in the last century. Turns out to be the 47th president and her administration. That's the subject of this book. So the president after Biden in this book is a woman called Ahadi Fadili Mason, very unusual candidate who shakes things up in a most unusual way. So I'm totally hooked, right? It's a really interesting premise. And then I get to page 40. Now the president, Ahadi Fadili Mason, is, is in the Oval Office with her head of security, a guy named Al. And this is where things get interesting. Put yourself in my place. Just minding your own business, <laughs> sitting at home, recuperating. Page 40. Ahadi Fadili Mason walked around the table to welcome her visitor, who rose to greet her firm handshake with his own. He was smiling, but he also looked puzzled. So was Al. He couldn't figure out why the president was meeting with this guy, but he figured he'd know soon enough. Thanks for agreeing to meet with me, Mr. Rowe, said the president, gesturing for him to sit. He did, and she took the seat next to him. Thank you, ma'am. Rowe responded. I'm not in the habit of getting calls from the White House. I have to admit that I thought it was a joke at first, but I'm very pleased to meet you. She smiled. There are times when I think this whole thing is a joke, Mr. Rowe. A bad one. But there has to be a punchline in there somewhere, and I figure I have four years to find it, and I'm hoping you 
might be able to help me. It gets weirder. Roe laughed at that. Your people were very persuasive on the phone, Mrs. I mean, Madam President, but you'll have to forgive me. I still don't exactly know why I'm here. Mr. Roe, I'll get straight to the point, she began. Every president that wins an election sweeps into office with grand plans for greatness and equally grand plans to win re-election. But here's the deal. I have no interest in re-election after my four years. Call me naive if you like, but I want one kick at the can to make a difference here, after which I'll turn things over to whoever comes next. And I'll tell you why. In my opinion, and this may be the naive part of me, so don't laugh, every first-term president spends the second two years of the four-year term campaigning for the second term. In other words, they don't really focus on the job they were hired to do, and I have a problem with that. The people have hired me for four years, so I intend to give them four uninterrupted years of my best effort, which means that if I screw it up, I don't have to spend time unscrewing it in my second term. So, since I have no plans for a second act, I can do some things a bit differently that my predecessors could not, and that's where you come in. I don't need to tell you that there's a whole lot wrong in this country, Mr. Rowe, and a lot of it comes down to a few simple things. Education is broken. The whole jobs thing is broken. And frankly, common sense has gone out the window. So I'm going to spend the next four years doing my damnedest to fix as many of those problems as I possibly can. Rowe nodded scooted his chair back and turned it toward the president, placing his arms on his knees as he leaned over. I agree completely, ma'am, and you're preaching to the choir, but I still don't understand why I'm here. Well, she smiled, scooting her own chair back and leaning toward her guest. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I'll be the first to admit that, but I'm also not an idiot because I'm pretty good at finding the sharpest knives. I can't do the things I want to do by myself. Nobody can. And here's a little secret, in case you haven't already figured it out. Politicians, they never fix things. Frankly, I'm surprised that most of them can manage to get themselves dressed in the morning, based on what I've seen. I have to put together a cabinet, Mr. Rowe. The intent of assembling a cabinet is to build a drawer full of sharp knives that advise the president. In one pretty important area, you appear to be sharper than most. I'd like you to consider becoming a member. Roe showed no emotion, but Al Gordon, who had heard the entire conversation, was stunned. She wants the dirty jobs guy on her cabinet? What the hell? Roe seemed equally stunned. Madam President, I don't know what to say. I mean, first of all, thank you. I'm honored that you'd even consider me. Frankly, I'm wondering if you have me confused with somebody else. This table knows more about politics than I do. The president laughed. That's precisely the point, Mr. Rowe. An old friend of mine always says, if you want something different, you have to do something different. Well, if I build a cabinet that's made up of Washington insiders, all I'm doing is recreating what's already been done before. I'd rather not do that. I want to shake things up. And that's going to take different people with different ideas about how to do things. So what do you say? Are you in? I, I, well, I, may I ask what I would be doing? Roe hadn't been this flummoxed since the first time he sang on stage. You've got credibility, skill, and people respect you, the president replied. 
You stand for things, all kinds of things that this country needs right now. I'm all about dependencies, Mr. Rowe. We need major infrastructure work, roads, bridges, water systems, and that's just the start. But we can't do those things without people who have the skills and knowledge to do the work. So I'm creating a new cabinet position. I need a chief national infrastructure officer, and you're it, if you want it. Oh, and I'm also eliminating a cabinet post. There's no more secretary of education. I'm lumping it all under you. I can't imagine a world where job creation and education aren't joined at the hip. Al Gordon was speechless. He didn't show it, at least he hoped he didn't, but he sure as hell didn't expect this. He was already envisioning the rabid response from Washington old timers. Holy shit, he thought, this is going to be fun. A fleeting smile crossed his face. So what do you say, Mr. Rowe? Can I count on you? He looked at the president and for the first time realized she was serious. Ma'am, I don't believe for a minute that you aren't going to wake up tomorrow morning and wonder what the hell you were thinking. Forgive my language, please. But if I can bring some kind of value to what you're trying to do, then it would be my honor to serve. Just one thing, though. Mr. Rowe is my dad. My name's Mike. Are you kidding me? So, full disclosure, I can't recommend the book because I, I haven't read it yet. That's as far as I got. I'm on page 43. But I, I kind of scrolled ahead looking for my name. It's in there, a bunch. I pop up in this thing. I, I mean, this is... It, it's a small thing, but it's, uh, it's, it's very flattering. Stephen Shepard, The Nation We Knew. If you're curious to know what happens next, as I am, it's like $9.99 on Amazon. Assuming you're sitting home with nothing to do, waiting for your nose to get back to normal. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. I like that story. This guy liked uh, Mike Rowe that much to put him in a book. I thought that was pretty cool. Um... And, <clears throat> excuse me, here's a reason, here's one of the reasons why people like Mr. Mike Rowe. I want to tell you this story. So, Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs has made a habit of going viral on the internet by responding to fan questions like the time a fan told him to prove he was the real deal and wasn't living a posh celebrity lifestyle and Rowe responded by giving a photo tour of his apartment. <laughs> On Tuesday, it was Stephen Adams of Auburn, Alabama, who wrote in questioning a now-famous speech in which Rowe said, follow your passion was the worst advice he'd ever received. <laughs> and, you know, just hear him out. Hear him out, okay? Because at first I was like, wait, I like, I like the term follow your passion. What's wrong with that? Mike has a very interesting perspective. So he's, So this gentleman says... Hi, Mike. Let me get, begin uh, by saying that I love what you and your foundation are attempting to do. This guy, Stephen Adams of Auburn, Alabama, wrote. Uh, however, I'm confused by your directive to not follow your passion. I think it can be safely argued that if no one followed their passion, companies like Apple, Microsoft, Dow, and many more wouldn't exist. If no one follows their passion, who innovates? Who founds companies that provide jobs for the outstanding workers that our foundation aims them sorry that your foundation aims to help? This is Mike Rowe's response. Hi Stephen. A few years ago, I did a special called The Dirty Truth, 
In it, I challenged the conventional wisdom of popular platitudes by offering dirtier, more individualistic alternatives. For my inspiration, I looked to those hackneyed bromides that hang on the walls of corporate America. The ones that extol passerby to live up to their potential by dreaming bigger, working smarter, and being a better team player. In that context, I first saw Follow Your Passion displayed in the conference room of a telemarketing firm that employed me 30-some years ago. The words appeared next to an image of a rainbow arcing gently over a waterfall and disappearing into a field of butterflies. Thinking of it now still makes me throw up in my mouth. <laughs> like all bad advice, follow your passion is routinely dispensed as though its wisdom were both incontrovertible and equally applicable to all. Stephen, it's not. Just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean you won't suck at it. <laughs> He's right. And just because you're determined to improve doesn't mean that you will. Does that mean you shouldn't pursue a thing you're passionate about? Of course not. The question is, for how long though, and to what end? He's just saying you got to be honest about what your strengths and weaknesses are. When it comes to earning a living and being a productive member of society, I don't think people should limit their options to those vocations they feel passionate towards. I met a lot of people on dirty jobs who really loved their work, but very few of them dreamed of having the career they ultimately chose. I remember a very uh, successful septic tank cleaner who told me his secret of success. He said, I looked around to see where everyone else was headed, and then I went the opposite way, he said. Then I got good at my work, then I found a way to love it, and then I got rich. Every time I watch the Oscars, I cringe when some famous movie star, trophy in hand, starts to deconstruct the secret to happiness. It's always the same thing, and I can never hit mute fast enough to escape the inevitable cliches. Don't give up on your dreams, kids, no matter what. Don't let anyone tell you what you uh, don't have what it takes. Don't let anyone tell you that you don't have what it takes. And of course, always follow your passion. <laughs> Today we have millions looking for work and millions of good jobs. Unfilled because people are simply not passionate about pursuing those particular opportunities. Do we really need Lady Gaga telling our kids that happiness and success can be theirs if only they follow their passion? <laughs> There are many examples, including those you mentioned, of passionate people with big dreams who stayed the course, worked hard, overcame adversity, and changed the world through sheer pluck and determination. We love stories that begin with the dream and culminate when that dream comes true. And to your question, we would surely be worse off without the likes of Bill Gates, Thomas Edison, and all the other innovators and captains of industry. But from my perspective, I don't see a shortage of people who are willing to dream big. 
I see people struggling because their reach has exceeded their grasp. Think about that sentence. He says, I don't see a shortage of people who are willing to dream big. We're all dreaming big, right? Fairy tales and make-believe. Rather, I see people struggling because their reach has exceeded their grasp. You better start getting honest with yourself. You better start looking in the mirror and start saying to yourself, am I really good at what I'm doing? Or am I lying to myself? Mike Rowe continues, I'm fascinated by the beginning of American Idol. Every year, thousands of aspiring pop stars show up with great expectations, only to learn that they don't have anything close to the skills they thought they did. What's amazing to me isn't their lack of talent. It's their lack of awareness and the resulting shock of being rejected. How is it that so many people are so blind to their own limitations? How did these people get the impression they could sing in the first place? Then again, is their incredulity really so different than the surprise of a college graduate who learns on his first interview that his double major in medieval studies and French literature doesn't guarantee him the job he expected? In a world where everyone gets a trophy, encouragement trumps honesty, and realistic expectations go out the window. When I was 16, I wanted to follow in my grandfather's footsteps. I wanted to be a tradesman. I wanted to build things and fix things and make things with my own two hands. This was my passion, and I followed it for years. I took all the shop classes at school. I did all I could to absorb the knowledge and skill that came so easily to my granddad. Unfortunately, the handy gene skipped over me, and I became frustrated, but I remained determined to do whatever it took to become a tradesman. One day, I brought home a sconce from woodshop that looked like a paramecium. And after a heavy sigh, my grandfather told me the truth. He explained that my life would be a lot more satisfying and productive if I got myself a different kind of toolbox. This was almost certainly the best advice I have ever received, but at the time, it was crushing. It felt contradictory to everything I knew about persistence and the importance of staying the course. It felt like quitting. But here's the dirty truth, Stephen. Staying the course only makes sense if you're headed in a sensible direction. Because passion and persistence, while most often associated with success, are also essential ingredients of futility. That's why I would never advise anyone to follow their passion until I understand who they are, what they want, and why they want it. Even then, I'd be cautious. Passion is too important to be without, but too fickle to be guided by. 
which is why I'm more inclined to say, don't follow your passion, but always bring it with you. Carry on, sir. Mike Rowe. I love it, people. I'm going to probably uh, run some more micro stuff by you guys in the future. He's got a lot of cool things out there that uh, I think most people would benefit from hearing and listening to. So, this next clip I want to play for you guys is by Rob Dial. And... Um, I'm going to let it speak for itself. This is uh, something I think we could all use in our lives. Very helpful, useful information. And uh, I wanted to share this with you also. So here we go. The five-hour rule. Maybe you replace Netflix with learning. Maybe you replace social media. <clears throat> Everybody, it could be life-changing for you. Today, we're going to be talking about how to think outside the box and why it's so important for you to think outside the box with everything that happens to be going on right now. So in order to, to actually go in and, and tell you why this is important, I'm actually to start with a story. So in the early 1900s, there was a guy who owned a, a fast food company. And in this fast food company, the, he was literally like the type of person that was so analytical. He had fully optimized his business. And this is a true story. And so literally to the point where he went through every single aspect of the business and he thought to himself, how can I optimize this? And so it was a burger place. And so he went in and looked at the burgers and he said, okay, if I look at the buns, if I look at the meat, if I look at the tomatoes, the cheese, if I look at every single aspect from how I order it, how it gets here, how it's stored, how it's cooked, how it's put together, how they wrap it up, how it gets delivered to the customer at the, at the counter. Is there ways that I can optimize this? And so we optimize every single process of making the burger. Then he went through every single process of making the fries, every single process that he could. And he goes, okay, now that the food is fully optimized, what about the soda machines? How can I optimize the soda machines to make sure that we get the most out of our soda machines or as fast as possible? And this is where fast food came from is there were these people that had burger places and they wanted to make them as fast as they possibly could versus having sit down. So he starts figuring out how he can get better, how he can get better, how he can get better. How can I make sure that the cashiers check people out more efficiently and we can make as much money as possible? So he goes through, literally optimizes his entire business. And then he goes, I don't know how to make anything faster. I don't know how to optimize anymore. And so him and his business partner are brainstorming. And he's like, you know what I'm, I think I'm going to do? I think I'm going to start going to other businesses in other industries outside of the food industry and just see what they do and see if I get ideas. And his business partner's like, well, I don't, that doesn't really make sense why you would do that because it makes more sense for you to go and see other people in the food industry and see what they're doing. He's like, well, I've already done that. I'm going to start going to other industries and see what they're doing. So what does he do? He starts going to grocery stores. Then he decides he wants to start going to libraries. Then he goes to all of these different places. And one day he goes to a bank and he walks into a bank and he's like, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm down the street. I have a, a food company. And I want to just see what you guys do and see if I can get some ideas of maybe I can help you guys in some sort of way. Maybe you can help me in some sort of way. They're like, yeah, I guess that's fine. You know, you can shadow the manager for the day. And um, right in the morning as he's shadowing the manager, he's like, hey, there's people that are doing construction outside. What are they doing? And he goes, oh, we're going to build something called a drive-through. This is the early 1900s. We're going to build something called a drive-through so that people don't have to get out of their cars in order to come in and actually start to 
you know, in order to, to come in and actually get money or deposit money, whatever it is, we're going to allow them to actually stay in their car in order to put money in whatever it is they need to do here at the bank. And he thought to himself, oh my God, I never thought of optimizing my business that way. I've been trying to optimize my business by everything that I know in the food industry and when someone comes in, but I never thought about optimizing the customer's experience so that it's faster for them so they don't have to get out of their cars. And so it went back to his, his, uh, his business partner. He said, we've got to make this thing called a drive-through. And he's like, what is that? Explains the whole process to him. He's on board. You know, they got to take out one of the walls and put up windows and they got to switch a lot of stuff around. He does this and fully optimizes the drive-through process. And a few years later, for millions of dollars in the early 1900s, ends up getting bought by McDonald's. McDonald's obviously started using drive-thrus. Now drive-thrus are known like crazy. Now, why do I tell you this story? It's because this guy tried to optimize every version of his life, everything that he possibly could in his business. But what happened is he started going outside of his industry, outside of what he knew so that he could learn much more. Everything was already fully optimized. He decided to learn from other industries. And I learned this from a guy named Jeff Hoffman. Jeff Hoffman is a billionaire. He founded Priceline.com. And he calls something, he does this thing called info sponging. And info sponging is where he takes time every single day to learn something that has nothing to do with his business. Nothing to do with his business. And what he does is he takes time every single day and he takes a three by five card. So he'll read you know, a chapter of a book that has nothing to do with his industry. He'll read a magazine that's from a completely different industry. He'll read and learn and try to grow that has nothing to do with his industry. And then what he'll do is he'll get a three by five card and he'll summarize what he learned for the day in this, this event he calls info sponging. He'll write down on a three by five card what it is that he learned and what he liked about it. And then he'll just forget about it. He takes that three by five card, he throws it inside of a shoebox. And at the end of every single month, he takes out the shoebox and he looks through all of the cards and thinks about how can I use this in my life or how can I use this in my business? And sometimes, most of the time, he can't use it in his business in any sort of way. It doesn't make any sense. But one day he was reading through and he, he was looking through his boxes and he looked through. And he read an article earlier that month and it said, it was talking about how bananas, when bananas get closer to their expiration date and they're about to go bad, they're ripe, but they're about to go bad, they become cheaper. And the reason why is because the grocery stores want to make sure that banana gets sold to somebody or else they lose money on it. And so they lower the prices of bananas so that therefore they can make sure that they make their money and they don't lose any money. And he thought to himself, oh my God, I think I can use this. And so at that point in time, he was in the airline industry and he was, his company at that point in time was actually the company that developed uh, the, the kiosk. So you can actually check yourself in, get your, your flight taken, you know, your, your, your boarding pass printed out, all of that stuff. So his company was in that industry and he was in the airline industry. He thought to myself, okay, now if you look at it, you might say airlines, bananas, airlines, bananas, airlines, bananas, that doesn't make any sense. And so what he did though, is he said, when, air, when, when bananas are about to go bad, they become cheaper. And then he said, I wonder if the closer and closer and closer it gets to a flight taking off, if the open seats become cheaper. So because of the fact that he had connections in the airline industry, he went to Delta, he went to American, he went to United, he went to every single company that he could that was in the airlines. And he said, Hey, I'm curious, how often do you have seats that are not sold? And they're like about 10 to 15% of the seats 
on all of the flights that we have are never sold. And he said, how much would you be willing to sell those for? If, if, a, price, if a flight is $500, what would you be willing to take instead of having an empty seat? You know, knowing that the person's going to have luggage, no, all of this stuff. Let's work it in. He sits down with the airlines and he finds out the perfect amount of how much it would be worth for them. And so what he does is he develops Priceline.com. Priceline.com, the way that they became famous is that they had a, you know, offer your own price. And so as the flights got closer and closer and closer, people could make an offer. So if the flight is normally $500, they could say, listen, I'll pay $400 and that's my bid. I'll pay $300 and that's my bid. And the bid would then go to the airline companies and they would say to themselves, is this worth it? Is it not worth it? And they would either accept or decline. And if they accepted it, you had to buy that flight. It was your card was automatically charged. There was nothing that you could do. There were no refunds. And so what happened is he built a multi-billion dollar company off of the idea that he got from reading an article about bananas. And you would never think that's something that would happen. And so what I reason why I'm bringing all this up is because I want to challenge you to learn about stuff that doesn't make any sense for you at this point. I want to challenge you to do this. And this brings us to what's called the five hour rule. Okay. The five hour rule is the idea with the world changing as much as it is with things happening. I just did an episode on, on how much the world is changing and how, if you don't adapt, you're going to be left behind with the world changing as much as it is. How do we keep up? And the five hour rule makes it super simple. Here's what the five hour rule is every single day. You should spend Monday through Friday. You should spend one hour reading and learning and growing five days per week. So five days a week, all you have to do is read, learn and grow, preferably outside of your industry. But you can also you know, learn inside of your industry if you don't feel like you perfected your industry. And what you do, and I'm going to take the five hour rule. I'm also going to take the info sponging. I'm going to put them together is have a stack of three by five cards. Read something. See how that could work for you write it down that three by five card. And when you're done with it, you put it inside of a shoebox. you put it wherever it is, leave it, you know, have a stack on top of your desk, whatever it is. And at the end of every single month, flip through those cue cards, flip through all of them and see if there's something in there that you can pull into your life. If you are a business owner, this could be massive for you to keep ahead of the competition. If you are somebody who is just going to college and learning and growing. This can be massive for you for thinking outside of the box and thinking differently in everything that you do. So the five hour rule is to spend, you know, one hour per day, Monday through Friday, learning. Where this came from was Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin did this every single week, right? If you want to constantly stay on top, you've got to constantly push yourself to learn and grow. And, you know, it's a commitment to being a student and always learning. And if you look at the, the people that that our society looks up to the most. So the type of people who they seem to know everything, right? They're so well read. They seem so they're so well versed in everything that they have. If you look at Oprah, if you look at Warren Buffett, if you look at Tony Robbins, you look at Elon Musk, anybody that you look at and you're like, wow, that person seems to know a lot. The thing that tends to be the common denominator, even though they're all in different industries, is that they all have a commitment to learning and growing and never resting on the laurels of their success. The difference between you know, what I, what I have seen from a lot of successful people that I know and successful, unsuccessful people that I've seen is that unsuccessful people tend to just think that they know it all to rest in the laurels of their success and to never go, you know what, I'm going to try to push myself to be better. And the people who are successful act like they aren't successful at all. They act like they don't have any money. They act like they've, they're, they're the type of person who doesn't have anything. 
They never rest on the laurels of their success. They're constantly trying to learn. They're constantly trying to grow. And that commitment to being a student is what helps them out. Now, here's what happens. In the short term, that hour is going to take away from everything that you do. Like that's just a fact. That hour is going to take away from an hour of productivity today, an hour of productivity tomorrow, Monday through Friday. But in the long term, the knowledge that is gained from it will be massive for you. The knowledge that is gained from it will be life-changing for you because you will be so far ahead a year from now. You will be so far ahead of every single person that's around you that you're going to be different. You're going to think different. Now, if you do this for two years, three years, five years, 10 years, it could be life-changing for you. You're going to be way different than everyone in your industry and everyone that you have around you. But the key to it is this, is to think about how this relates to your life and to think about when would the best time for me to do this be? When's the best time for you? When is it during the day? For me, it's usually late afternoon or late morning is, is the best time for me. That's it. You look at it and you say, okay, the late afternoon is when I'm going to do it. Usually about 10 to 11 o'clock is when I, I feel like my brain's working the best. And that's when I want to push myself to learn, right? Maybe for you, it's the same time. Maybe for you, it's six o'clock in the morning before the kids wake up. That's just when you have quiet time. And that's when you, you know, decide that you like to learn and grow. Maybe it's before you go to bed. You just, you dedicate an hour to yourself. Instead of watching Netflix, you decide, you know what? The last hour is going to be dedicated towards my own growth, my own knowledge, everything that I do. Maybe you replace Netflix with learning. Maybe you replace social media, <clears throat> everybody. Replace social media with learning. Think about what I, what I want to challenge everybody to do is to take your phone and at the end of the month, go through or end of the week when you get that report that says how much time you spent on your phone, everything, look back and see how much time you spent on social media. Look back and see how much time you spent on YouTube. And if you're using YouTube for, for growing, then that's fine. But think about the ways that you waste time on this little device, this little phone, and think, what would happen if I replaced some of that time with learning? What would happen if I replaced some of that time with growing? What would happen if I replaced some of that time with pushing myself to be better? Think about that. So where can you fit it in? Where can you fit it in your day? And where can you fit it in with stuff that you're normally doing? It's never that you don't have enough time. It's just not a priority for you. Your learning should always be a priority for you. So that's the first aspect of it. Then I want to pivot and talk about what should you be learning, right? So if you think about what should you be learning, the first question I have for you is where do you want to go? In your life, where do you want to go? In five years, where do you want to be? In 10 years, where do you want to be? In 15 years, where do you want to be? And you think about that future that you want and the future person that you want to be. And then you ask yourself, in order to get there, in order to have the business that I want, in order to have the family that I want, in order to have the relationships that I want, the finance that I want, all of those things, in order to have those, what do I need to learn? And you find out what you need to learn. And then from there, now you have a pretty good idea of the stuff that you should start reading, the people that you should start pulling yourself around, putting yourself around, the, the knowledge that you should get into your head. Okay, where do I want to go? What do I need to know to get there? That's where you start. And the important thing is to realize that if you just learn five hours a week, that's not much. There's a lot of time. I think it's around 164 hours, something like that, 168 hours that are in a, an entire week. You're telling me you can't spend five hours dedicated to your learning, to your growing, to your becoming better? You absolutely can. We all can. We could all find time where we're wasting time. You know, <laughs> what if you were to just literally go, you know what? Every time I go to the bathroom and I, I decide to go number two, 
I'm going to take a book with me around XYZ and that's what I'm going to learn. I'm sure you spend, you know, a pretty good amount of time there every single day, 10, 15, 20 minutes on the bathroom, right? There's some time right there for you. Netflix, if you were to get rid of it, there's some time right there for you. Social media, if you were to get rid of it or just at least lower it, there's some time there for you. There's always time to learn and grow and get better. And I think people know, actually, I know people know they should be learning, but I think people underestimate the value of the long-term results that you'll get from taking time and investing into yourself because there is no better ROI than putting time, money, energy, attention into your own development whatever it is that you want to learn it, whether it's business, whether it's self-development, whether it's, you know, creating a better relationship with your spouse, whether it's being a better parent, there's always time available to you. So if you think that there's not any time, I would challenge you to find where that time is. It's there. You just haven't made it a priority yet. Because when you sit down and you learn and grow, years down the road, you're going to notice you're a completely different person. Yeah, man. Persistence is the key, right? You got to try and you got to fail and you got to try and you got to fail and you, you got to fall down seven times, get up eight. Remember when Denzel Washington told you guys that? If it was easy, everybody would do it, right? Ease is a bigger threat to progress than hardship. And how can you ever have time, people? my fellow Americans, if you never make time. I have this new saying in my life that I have to schedule the fun. It's part of being an adult. You can't just, you know, go hang out with your friends whenever you want. You got responsibilities. People got families. It's a different world, different game now, right? But like me and my fiance, like we got to, you know, we, we always say we got to schedule the fun or else we're never going to have it. Our, you know, life gets so busy and you get so one track mind with, with your work and with your hobbies and, you know, with your responsibilities, whatever you got, you got to find time, you know, and if you can find small amounts of time to do things, same thing with working out. If you can find an hour out of every day or every other day to just be physical, exercise your body. If you can find an hour or two every other day to educate your mind, sit down knock out a chapter of a book, the accumulation of those things, those small, it's like small usurpations over time, people. <laughs> it's like compounding interest. <laughs> you know, you put away five bucks every day, all of a sudden, you know, not too long down the road, you got a nice little chunk of change, you know? Just do the, do the simple math. You know? Rob Dial's a very motivating guy. I, I really wanted to play that clip for you guys because uh, I think you know it's very important to know and to be reminded that with a little you know getting your mind right and getting disciplined and trying to solve problems and being pragmatic and finding your your niche opportunity, you can easily build your own empire here in the United States of America, people, regardless of the color of your fucking skin, regardless of your religion, regardless of whether or not you identify as a man, woman, or, you know, other. It doesn't matter. It does not matter who you are. 
In a free market, no exchange of goods and services takes place unless both parties benefit. Capitalism is your friend, people. It is not your enemy. The people that pervert the system that could be working wonders for us are the people in the big club. We've been over it. We've been over it a million times. I'm getting redundant, right? Yada, 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 etc., etc., etc. And you're for America. Could you please move on, sir? Okay. Let's move on. Uh, let's play this. I found this to be quite interesting and funny. This is... Uh, for those of you that follow me on the social medias, you know I'm a big fan of the satire of the Babylon Bee. <laughs> it, uh, Tucker Carlson is also a fan, and uh, I caught this from Tucker talking to Seth Dillon, I think is his name, the guy that runs um, the Babylon Bee. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of the Babylon Bee. <laughs> Uh, smart jokes. I like smart jokes. But uh, take a take a listen to this exchange. This was quite interesting. Here we go. The Babylon Bee is a satire site. Started off pretty funny, then it got genuinely hilarious and incisive because it persisted in telling the truth. So of course, the New York Times hated that. The New York Times recently denounced the Babylon Bee as quote a far right misinformation site that quote sometimes traffics in misinformation under the guise of satire. No humor allowed. But the Babylon Bee, to its everlasting credit, did not take that sitting down. They threatened to sue the New York Times for saying it. The Times' lawyers wrote back, admitting that actually the New York Times can be a source of disinformation, which it certainly is. And then this, quote, We have removed the reference to the Babylon Bee from the article and appended a correction. Whoa! Seth Dillon is the man who made that happen, who backed down the New York Times. He's the CEO of the Babylon Bee, and we are honored to have him join us tonight. Seth, thanks so much for coming on. I don't know what happened to your site, how it got so great. It was good, but then it got, like, amazing. Um, but I didn't realize <laughs> well, that you were the huevos to go after the New York Times. Like, good for you. Why'd you do this? Well, first, thank you for having me on your show and giving me a platform from which to misinform your millions of viewers uh, harmfully <laughs> and maliciously. Uh, I really appreciate it, sincerely. Yeah, anytime. Uh, That's what we do. You know, I... <laughs> we can't take this stuff laying down. We, we actually, as satirists, we want to joke about this stuff. We want to just poke fun at the New York Times. The problem is, like it or not, the New York Times is considered a reliable source. So, you know, when, when the social networks are looking to uh, decide who's satire, who's misinformation, who's fake news, right. you know, they look to the New York Times, they look to Snopes, they look to CNN. Uh, and so when they're making these mischaracterizations about us, we have to take it seriously. And we've got to come on here. Even though we don't want to, we want to keep things light. We've got to send demand letters. We've got to threaten to sue because otherwise we're going to get mischaracterized and we're going to get the boot from social media. Oh, so it's not just a question of honor. This is not just a duel because they insulted you. This is a direct threat to your existence, to your business model, is what you're saying. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we so we depend on the social networks for traffic to our site. If we lose the social networks, we lose our business. So uh, it's really a self-preservation thing. Absolutely. It's about survival. How interesting. I was I misread this completely. So that this is even more sinister. So the New York Times, by calling you a disinformation site, is in, in effect threatening to shut you down. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's a deliberate strategy. I mean, look, the, the fake news has been a concern uh, for social networks for the last several years. They've been trying to find ways to fact check, deplatform, and uh, demonetize and deboost people who are spreading fake news on their platforms. Um, and so, you know, the, the legacy media, leftist media is taking advantage of that. You know, in that last segment, you're talking about comedy and how comedians need to be leading the way. We're one of the few comedians who are leading the no. way. We're not, we're not trailing this. We're out ahead of it. No. Uh, we're making fun of the things that need to be made fun of. We're ridiculing bad ideas. Um, they have, you know, the New York Times has incredible disdain for us, I would guess, uh, by the way they're treating us and the way they're handling this, because they know better. It, on the one hand, it's extremely ironic that they're using misinformation to smear us as being a source of it. Uh, but beyond that, it's comically ironic. But beyond that, it's malicious because they know better. So really quick, did you guys ever start a war in, say, Iraq under false pretenses over at the Babylon Bee? Did we start what under a war in Iraq under false pretenses? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. That was the New York Times. Like the New York okay. Times did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. You just want to check. So when you guys do that, then I guess we'll criticize you. In the meantime, congratulations on running the funniest site on the internet. It's amazing. So oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. that. Man, I mean, people, if just think about this ideology, people, it, you you can't have humor. You can't have a sense of humor. We can't we can't make fun of each other anymore. Everyone's so sensitive. This is the logical end of your cancel culture and your identity politics, your social justice warriors. No more fun, people. You'll be a number, not a name, and everyone will be the same. That's the future. This is, that is what this ideology is moving towards. And you want, you want to know some examples some, of some similar uh, thought processes that have happened in the past? Oh, just look at the Soviet Union. Uh, just look at North Korea. Uh, just look at uh, China right now. Look at any communist regime that have used the same tactics repeatedly throughout history. This stuff's happening. And you know, the mainstream media is in free fall, people. <laughs> They're starting to get scared. People are starting to rip on them. And, and people are waking up to how ridiculous their bullshit is. They're, you know, the viewership's dropping like flies. I told you guys previously, Brad Stelter, or Brian Stelter, um, yeah, Brian Stelter of uh, CNN, Don Lemon, CNN, that woman, I forget her name, from MSNBC, they're, ever since Trump came, uh, left office, they've lost over half of their viewership. Because the majority of the people watching their show are just listening to the Trump bashing. <laughs> the, I mean, people. The market, like Joe Rogan is right. Like the market has spoken and your show fucking sucks. <laughs> it's because you're a Looney Tune idiot. Nut job calling for censorship. Making millions of dollars. Getting to be on a major, like the, the only, the fact that someone like those guys Don Lemon and Brian Stelter got a platform on a network as big as CNN. Should say so much to you people, my fellow Americans, about the goals and aspirations of the big club. It's, I mean, honestly, it's it should speak for itself. You guys just got to start taking a closer look at this stuff. Hey, this is kind of funny. This is uh, Nicole Arbor. Don't know if you know who Nicole Arbor is. She's a funny blonde Canadian comedian 
Uh, and she had just recently posted this funny bit about cancel culture, and I found it humorous. So let's laugh at cancel culture together for a minute. Let's not let humor and comedy die, people. If the arts, if music, if comedy goes away, people, what's the fucking point? Punk rock will never die in a world like this, people. And stop looking at punk rock through the lens of left and right wing ideology, people. It's authoritarian versus libertarian. If you're a punk rocker in the 21st century, people, you should be a little bit more liberty-minded than authority-minded. Come on, isn't that what being punk rock's all about? Damn the man. Fuck the system, right? You want to do what you want. You want to have the freedom to express yourself the way that you want to. Right? How can you be on the side of the authoritarians then, people, and still call yourselves punk rock? I see all you idiot knucklehead morons running your mouths on the Fat Records site and the punk rock parents and the punk rock... I'm a member of 20,000 punk rock pages groups on Facebook. I see it all the time. Oh, who let all these right-wing uh, Trump lovers into the uh, uh, punk rock scene? Uh, these guys aren't punk rock, dude. Shut the fuck up. Anyway, here's Nicole Arbor. Let's laugh at cancel culture together, people. Here we go. My name's Darlene Dougal. Cletus Johnson. David Tacklebox. Samantha. I'm a fact checker. I check facts. Take these, burn them. And a lot of people call me a fact checker but I prefer the term fact artist. I have no formal education, which is why I'm perfect for this job. I worked at Hooters for three years. Well, to be educated in the factual arts, uh, typically people will spend between 30 and 40 hours um, perusing sites, Reddit, uh, 4chan. Um, this is where the most facts lie. It is you're determining what's factual and not for humanity. This is a long sentence. It's a lot like Bitcoin, but instead of uh, creating money, you're destroying lives. I like Portland. I like dancing. We, we just like to bring the vibe of Portland to the internet and then into people's psyches so they can experience like rioting in their minds. Fact. <laughs> Have you ever seen the movie 1984? Yeah. You know the thought police? Yes. That's not what we do. People who think less are generally happier. That's my theory. Fact. How'd you get this job? Uh, I, I gave myself the job. I came out of the womb and they said, it's a girl. And I said, fact. Your name is Rachel. Fact, independent fact checkers have confirmed that your name is Rachel. Your name's Rachel now. It's, we've confirmed it. A fact is. It's whatever I say it is. A thing. That because of independent fact checkers like me, the world is a safer, happier place. Fact is said, and then I'm tired. Yeah. World peace. Fact: False actors can try. Were you an actor? False. Did you try to be an actor? Fact. Honestly, the facts come in hot. They come in hot for my intuition. And sometimes I just wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, false, fact, false, fact, fact. Is Joe Biden the president? False. I think he's the president. False. He, he did, he, he won, well, won the election. Fact. <laughs> so then he's the president. False. I'm not sure. Think about it, think about it. History was a suggestion now. 
because I can decide that. But some people would say history is black and white. That's actual. racist. That's How's that racist? Black and white. What socials are you on? Deplatformed. Do you do that to people? Yes. <laughs> Only when they earn it by accidentally thinking for themselves. Why would you think if someone can think for you? Agree with me. Otherwise, you're getting deplatformed. You call an Uber so someone drives for you. You get Uber Eats because someone cooks for you. You have fact checkers so you don't have to think. You're welcome. I wanted to be a lot of things when I was a child uh, and, and because of ongoing legal matters that I cannot discuss, uh, I am no longer allowed to be 99% of what I used to want to be. Also, I can't go within 50 yards of a school. Uh, the fact checking community, we don't come in contact and that's a fact because it, it drips in and it's uh, dangerous because everybody's facts are different. I went out with the one guy and he wasn't allowed near the school. That was kind of weird. Who pays you? I pay myself. Not Facebook. First off, I am definitely not employed by Facebook. What happened is Facebook set up a shell company to hire independent fact checkers, and then they hired me because I had the correct amount of self-righteousness. How much is the correct amount of self-righteousness? All of it. I'm a thought curator to make sure that everybody thinks the same thing, which is important for unity and peace and the right people leading. Even if something is true, sometimes I'm supposed to say it's not, I'm not, No. Facts. If people can transition, why can't we change facts? <laughs> why do you think Facebook wants to think for people? Because they're really nice. <laughs> uh, I guess it was more fact checking, uh, ripping on fact checkers and cancel culture. Uh, somewhat talking about deplatforming i guess it was more ripping on fact checkers than it was on cancel culture but whatever it all rolls into the same stupid immature crybaby entitled bullshit mentality stupidest philosophy i've ever heard of people it's time for some punk rock and i guess that's it for today thanks for listening people this has been episode 46 of the politics and punk rock podcast entitled flattery passion irony comedy and punk i love you guys thanks for listening good night we'll see you next time